Everyday triumphs, extraordinary outcomes, a space where narratives connect. This is the Big Idea Box podcast. Born at the Lot Miami, this podcast invites all entrepreneurs to share, support, and empower. Food Speaker Series is a monthly hands-on discussion with local entrepreneurs who share the secrets of their success and failures. This monthly event takes place at the Lab Miami, helping Miami startups as well as entrepreneurs understand the opportunities alongside the challenges of launching and growing a business. We're sharing these amazing stories that provide new ideas and key practical advice to advancing one's own entrepreneurial career. Brain Food is brought to you by Endeavor Miami in partnership with the Lab Miami, Lab Ventures, Knight Foundation, and Startup FIU. Jacqueline Baumgarten is the co-founder and CEO of Boatsetter, South Florida's number one boat-sharing rental community. She leads with a focus on tactical strategy and clear leadership. Moderated by Raul Moas, the Miami Program Director at the Knight Foundation, who leads the foundation's initiatives in building a more dynamic, robust, and equitable community of entrepreneurs and startups. Let's dive in. Hey folks, good to be with you. Jackie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take a seat here. So has, um, has anyone been to a brain food before? Cool. So is this meant to be a kind of a more intimate kind of uh, look behind the glamour um, of the startup uh, life and the, the entrepreneur's life? Um, it's meant to be a little bit more uh, nuanced, I'd say, right? And so I think a lot of times we read stories about uh, entrepreneurs, successful ones and maybe less successful ones, um, that are either uh, very glamorous, right? And so Mark Zuckerberg single-handedly built Facebook in 10 days. Uh, and became a $100 billion nair uh, overnight. Um, and that's kind of what Inc. Uh, magazine pushes. Um, or you get the other side, right? Elizabeth Holmes with uh, Theranos. Fraud and always a fraud and always was a fraud and we always knew it, right? Um, including the people that put billions into it. And not oftentimes do we get into the, the more nuanced kind of conversation of like what actually is it like, highs and lows, to create a high impact, high growth business. Um, there are moments of consolation and desolation, highs and lows, right? Um, and so the Brain Food series is meant to be a little bit of that. It's meant to kind of give that more intimate portrayal um, and also go into actual like tactics, right? Like what is it, what are the, the skills that you need to go from 100 million to, or from 100,000 to a million, a million to 10 million? They're very different skill sets. So we want to go a little bit kind of behind the, the, the veil. You also want to get to know kind of our entrepreneurs a little bit better. Like you're a person, right? You are an entrepreneur, right? You're a CEO, but you're also a person. Um, and a person brings um, biases, they bring preferences, they bring traits uh, to the table. And so how does that inform what you're doing uh, at your company? So that's meant to be the, the conversation today, right? A little bit more than your, your stereotypical, typical uh, profile of a, of a company or an entrepreneur. We're going to open up for Q&A at the end, so we'll go about 30 minutes, more or less, just in conversation, really casual. Um, and then we'll open it up as, as you all have questions. We'll probably run mics or folks will just stand up and we'll, we'll kind of engage you all there. Um, so I guess just to kind of kick us off, first of all, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank um, you for having me. I'm incredibly humbled and honored to see this many people here. I'm just <laughs> shocked, actually. So no, no, thank really you for coming. Um, and this is like a very, um, 
Boat Center, I'll kind of let you introduce the, the company and your story, but, but it's also a company that I think a lot of folks in Miami feel great pride about because it feels like a very um, organic place for you guys to be, right? I, I don't think I'd see, if someone told me Boat Center was based in Omaha, Nebraska, I'd, I'd kind of be a little bit incredulous, right? Mm -hmm. Like this makes sense that it's here. And so in some ways it's like, folks always ask, what does entrepreneurship look like in, in South Florida? And this may be a little bit of a nod to that, right? Like we're leveraging our assets, we're leveraging things that we know here um, to create high impact companies. Mm -hmm. So in any case, enough of me. Um, we'd love to get a little sense on, 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 on your story, but introduce us to, to Boat Setter really quickly. For someone who's never heard of Boat Setter before, um, what is Boat Setter? Boat Setter is the leading global community for rentals, boat rentals and on-water experiences. Think of us like Airbnb for boats. We have thousands of yachts, um, not only throughout the US, throughout the Caribbean, the Med, and now Croatia. Cool. We also have the largest database of US Coast Guard licensed captains, so you don't have to have any experience commanding a boat to be able to enjoy a boat setter experience. Very cool. I was about to ask. I was like, I can sail, but I can't. I don't know if you want me driving a boat. Um, we, so you guys take care of everything. So if someone wants to have an experience, take the family out one Sunday, um, they can go online, find uh, a vessel that fits their needs in terms of kind of the experience they want, and the number of people they want to bring on board, and they can get a captain as well. Absolutely, and, and what's really cool, this will be live in two weeks on the site. We have our captains that have their own profile pages, cool. so they can put up video, they can put up images of the experiences that they create, whether it's deep sea fishing, whether it's sandbar hopping, sunset cruises, and you can read the reviews and the ratings of the captains. So we joke internally that it's Tinder for captains, but <laughs> You can you can pick your yeah. So somewhat analogous, like could you, could you draw the metaphor, the comparison to like the Airbnb experiences that they're doing now, the excursions, and like that is it's hyper personalized. There's no two experiences that are the same. Well, it's it's funny you bring up Airbnb. Um, not many people know this, but Airbnb is an investor in our company, and they are a partner on several levels. So we are the only company that's providing multiple experiences in multiple markets on Airbnb's experience platform. So the boating experiences that you see in San Francisco, LA, Miami, and Barcelona on Airbnb's platform are most likely being offered through Boat Setter. So that's really interesting because a lot of times folks uh, in South Florida will say that it's sometimes hard to reach some of these bigger players and, and work with them and partner with them. How did you guys make that happen without revealing trade secrets? So if there's one trait that I would use to describe myself, yeah. it's tenacious as hell. Okay. <laughs> um, I have reached out to build these relationships personally. I mean, we, we built a relationship with Brunswick. We brought them in as an investor. We have Airbnb, um, other leading marketplaces. But with Airbnb, I started early on just approaching them and learning about their business and tapping my network to get contacts. And eventually built a relationship with the CFO. But I think Airbnb is a slightly different circumstance. Um, I think a, a great story that's related to BD and the benefits for early stage companies is, for me early on it was very difficult to fundraise. And I started out in um, Silicon Valley, and whether it was because I'm a woman or it was just early stage company, it was very challenging. And I didn't have any success in fundraising early on with any of the VCs or traditional investors. So I had to get very creative. And one of the ways or channels that I think a lot of people overlook or don't think about as a method in lieu of taking an equity in your company is looking for strategic partners that can provide you value that you would have spent the money on anyways and diluted for it. 
So I reached out early on to major marina owner operators. I reached out to boat developer, I'm sorry, boat manufacturers, boat dealerships. And one of the tricks that I like to use is it's really important when you approach these BD meetings to present the entire case in the framework of how you're going to create value for them. I never place an ask in my deck. It's always diving in, understanding their business, and I'll give you a trick. They often, in larger companies, are going to do quarterly or annual strategic sessions. Salespeople within those organizations are privy to what the corporate strategy is. Salespeople have very loose lips. So I will often reach out to people through LinkedIn to find sales representatives and just start a conversation to learn about the company, understand what their objectives and goals are for that year in particular. And you better believe that that's going to be embedded in my pitch when I start meeting with the, the target um, individual that I'm trying to meet with. So things that I can pull out from there that I heard you say, tenacity, grit, perseverance, yes. right? You have to be ruthless about kind of pounding the pavement. Um, and then strategic, right? This isn't brute force. It's also understanding kind of what their needs are. And uh, someone, some folks kind of say like when you go pitch an investor, don't ask for money, ask for advice, and you'll end up with money, right? Um, so understanding who you're, you're speaking to and really generally getting to know them so that you can derive equal value, right? You're both winning here, right? It's a win-win-win. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's something else that I think has really helped catapult us in our success is I'm not a believer in zero-sum games. Right. Always approach every negotiation, every relationship as though it's going to be a long-term one and thinking fairly about what would be beneficial to them versus what my objectives are. And it's just a motto in terms of how I approach any business deal, is being very transparent, being clear about my objectives. Um, I'm a bit of a geek, so I'll do a multiple variable attribute model before a lot of my negotiations where I lay out what I think the, you know, the key elements of the deal that I want to negotiate. I'll apply a point system on where it could fall out, high or low. I do the same thing for them. I have a total optimized point system, and then as I'm negotiating, I can in my mind sort of wait how we're doing in terms of developing an optimal outcome from a point system. Method. It's serious method game there. Geeking huh? out, that's I all. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so going way back to this idea of, 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 of kind of when or how you came to Boat Setter, so let's take it kind of way back. When was the first time that you said, I like to build things, I like to build companies, I am an entrepreneur, and this is where I want to dedicate a ton of my time. Like, when did, when did that happen? So, I think it's valuable to share my background so you understand how I got to that point. Um, I went to Wellesley undergrad, I was a strategic management consultant for many years in New York, so I got to see how large corporations operated, it was a great extension of my education but I got exceptionally frustrated with the fact that you give recommendations but you don't get to build anything. So I went to business school, I went to Stanford and I literally swung the pendulum in the other direction where I said, I'm going to build. Okay. So I went into commercial real estate development. Oh, well, you're, you're <laughs> I literally wanted to build. Right, cool. um, at the time, there's a company, I don't know if, if you know them out here, called Westfield Corporation. And um, big malls, exactly, shopping malls. And uh, they were hiring, they had this rotational program, this competition where they'd hire one person out of either Harvard or Stanford each year, and I was super fortunate to be selected. And so the experience that I received there was priceless. Because here I was, a young, naive, you know, female professional being put in real estate development, and I was responsible for the largest development in the city of LA. So it was a two million square foot 
uh, project, mixed use, and the budget was a billion dollars. And here I am. Here I am expected to lead a team of people who were far more seasoned, knowledgeable. Everyone around that table was more experienced than I was, and it was humbling. And what it taught me to do was how to be able to define an end goal and an objective and get people aligned and, and be honest about where my weaknesses are and be able to build trust with my team and say, look, I need you to fill the gap here because you know a lot more about this than I do. And that was my first foray into, into leadership and project management and team building and it was priceless. And then 09 hit and everything came to a screeching halt because the company wasn't about to build that project in the economy. So I was impaired with the head of marketing and operations. And he said, Jackie, find a way to make more money out of our existing centers. So that's where I got my first true taste of entrepreneurship. Okay. I wrote the business plan and helped them launch a subsidiary called Westfield Media Group, which, um, is anyone here familiar with Clear Channel? Okay, so we basically competed with Clear Channel. We took the digital signage on the highways, on the properties, we created signage in the interior of the malls, we created our own digital signs, and brought our own out-of-home sales team, and it was so exciting because here I was defining a strategy, putting a team in place, setting a vision, setting objectives, and executing on that goal. And in three years, we generated about 60 million for the company out of, out of existing assets. And so at that point, I finally, finally, I can't say I fully had the courage, but I had the desire to want to build something for myself and to put those skills to work. And I think had I started like a lot of these, you know, these entrepreneurs that you see desiring to come out of college and all of a sudden be an entrepreneur, that would have been a recipe for disaster. Learning the fundamental skills and learning it within a structured organization and building that confidence and the skill set and the tools to draw upon were, were critical in terms of helping me become the leader that I am with my team. And so you're, at, you're in this role and then you say, listen, this is awesome, but I have passions, I have desires, I have, I have these hopes to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that different was. Okay. So Can you ex share a little bit more about that discernment process then? Because a lot of times I think folks say, I, I had this like great angst and I had to like do something different so I did X, Y, Z. Like there's a, a lot that happens in between make, like making that leap of faith, right? So like okay. that discernment process. So. If anybody here is sort of on that precipice of having to make that decision, do I leave a great paying job? Do I leave a career that you know, I've spent decades building yeah. to start something? It's one of the scariest, scariest decisions you're ever gonna make. And I decided to take the leap and took some time just to think about what I wanted to build. And I thought about what my happiest memories were. And my happiest memories were being on the water with my three brothers and my father out on the lakes in Michigan outside of Chicago. And I thought, how amazing would it be to be able to bring those experiences to the masses? And at the flip side, my two brothers owned boats. And they were going to have to sell their boats because they hadn't used them once the entire year. So here I am hearing you know, the gripes of my brother, knowing that I had this passion around boating, and seeing the success of companies like Airbnb relay rides at the time, monetizing these valuable assets, and I thought there really isn't a better asset to monetize than boats. But at the time, um, for any of you who own boats, you know that your recreational insurance excludes coverage and doesn't allow you to rent or charter. So I knew that before this marketplace could exist, I had to solve the insurance problem. So I spent eight months 
hitting the global insurance markets, pitching to underwriters as though they were going to be investors in the business, researching what the top 15 claims issues were, and showing how I would build an operational system in the marinas to mitigate those risks. And I developed hand-in-hand -hand with a leading maritime underwriter the first peer-to-peer -peer marine insurance policy that ever existed, and that's allowed the marketplace. That's incredible. And again, incredible method, right? Like incredible intent coupled with strategic method, right? That, that you said, I'm going to truly kind of like break down the details here and then add value to, to the insurance broker as much as, as they're adding value to you. I'm also very, very stubborn and people, <laughs> people telling me that this How doesn't exist. Oh. <laughs> I can't even tell you. I mean, I, I went through at least seven retail brokers, two wholesale brokers, <laughs> and eventually got to the underwriting company. And he flew out, the owner of the company actually flew out from the UK. He has a home here in Fort Lauderdale. I flew out from California, met him. We spent the weekend whiteboarding in his backyard how the policy would work. <laughs> and so once we had it outlined, I asked him for exclusivity, naturally. <laughs> And he said, sure, Jackie, write me a check for a million dollars and it's yours. So when I started this company, I lived in LA. I put my condo on the market and I used that money as my initial equity. I didn't take salary for two years. So I wasn't in a position to write a check for a million dollars. As a result, my insurance policy that I worked to develop got in the hands of my two competitors whom I'm proud to say I have since acquired. Yep. <laughs> so just for context, this company that you started isn't... Um, it is not Boatsetter. Boat no, I started a company called Cruisin. Yep. And in October, or June, July of the 2015, I started talking with Andy Sterner, who many of you may know, who had used the policy and started a version which was called Boat Setter at the time here in South Florida, but it really was a very, you know, it, it, it has developed tremendously since then. So Andy and I got together and we had a shared vision in terms of what we wanted to build and we knew that we'd be much stronger together than apart and I'm grateful and very fortunate to have him as a partner, as a chairman. And so from that point on, it was off to the races in, in growing and transforming the company into what it is today. And so what, where are we today? Where's, but where physically is Boat Setter today? And as a company, employees, kind of traction, momentum, what are we, what do you think? Sure. You're, you're an Endeavor uh, entrepreneur sure. as we... Yes, as an Endeavor we. entrepreneur, which I'm very proud to, to share. And uh, so we are based in Fort Lauderdale. We are 34 employees strong. And we are expanding to the Mediterranean. Awesome. Very cool. So as of now, you're, you're US based, expanding over into, into the Mediterranean. So we're going to be a global company. Yes. Phenomenal. I love that, right? Um, in terms of, uh, I, I guess, uh, where you see the, the market heading, are you guys, mar big, you're the market leader? You have the biggest uh, share of, of, so of the space? So in the U.S., yep. I, would I could say we are arguably the leader in peer-to-peer. -peer. Okay, cool. um, at this point, I think we are the only true peer-to-peer -peer offering, so we have the only exclusive insurance for it. Um, in Europe, there are other marketplaces, but they tend to be more aggregators of professional charter operators, and they do term charters, so longer than day rentals, five days or longer. Um, part of my growth focus for this year, you talk about scaling up, I have three primary focuses for growth. 
first one, investing in the product, creating virality and scalability within the product, uh, which is a very different mindset than early on. The second area is channel partners, continuing to invest in partnerships like Airbnb and you know, JetSmarter and others. The third is M&A. So I am in the process of leading a global roll-up strategy to become the largest global brand and player in the space. That is my vision awesome. and objective. I love it very much. Well. <laughs> Round of applause for that. <laughs> That's a, a moment of consolation. Awesome. A lot has probably happened to get you to this point. A lot, right? A lot of lows, right? Okay, that roller coaster. We were connecting earlier. Um, there's a book out there uh, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and it kind of busts the myths around the, the glamour in entrepreneurship. And the author kind of points out that the highs and lows about, around being an entrepreneur are only accentuated by the lack of sleep. And you're so sleep deprived, like the terror feels so much more terrifying. Um, and we got we to gotta laugh at that because it's true, though, right? It is so true. Totally true, right? So what, if you look back, right, uh, two questions. But the first one is, what are some of the mistakes that you've made, right, in this role, even after the amazing experiences you've had that have been formative and have allowed you, um, afforded you the skills to, to succeed to this point, what are some mistakes that you've kind of made in this new journey um, that you look back and you say, oh, I, I, that moment there was equally instructive, right? Like, I, I'm. Maybe, Maybe I don't, I don't like, like the fact, fact that, that I made that mistake or that we went through that, but it was equally formative in my leadership ability, my entrepreneurs, and in my view as an entrepreneur, whether it's managing your team or, or product. Something that, that folks here can take away and say, I should be looking out for that as I grow, as I roll out. Hmm. So two things when I look back that I wish I had learned faster and had known going into it. So remind me to come back to the second. The first is tied to fundraising. The second is tied to people on the team okay. and toxicity. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. Um, so fundraising. When you first start out, you are so desperate to get people to buy into your vision to write a check to show that they validate what you're doing and right. they believe in you as a leader. Yep. And what I found, particularly in the seed and, and angel funding process. Now, let me take a step back and put this in context. I raised over $20 million for the company so far. So it's a lot of small checks to be collecting. And um, in that process, what I've learned is how to value and fiercely protect my time. I wish I had known that sooner because as an entrepreneur, your most valuable asset and your most limited asset is your time. Yep. And you have a lot of these angel investors that just want to learn, and this is a hobby for them. You know, they're, they're happy to have lunch and coffee with you and drag on the diligence process. And I didn't understand a polite no. Um, and I wish I had learned that sooner. Uh, I am hyper tuned into body languages, un, um, understated statements. Like, I know when somebody's complimenting me about the company if they're seriously going to invest or not and I cut it off and I move on. So the word interesting is a flag. <laughs> you know, it's just, if anybody tells you just hit this milestone and come back, that's a no. That's an outright no. I didn't understand that early on. You know, super supportive, positive feedback. Just come back to me when you've hit X, that's no. Um, so, so any investor that says no doesn't mean no, no means not now, but there might be a point in the future. Do you exclude them entirely? 
So one of the things I completely respect is candor from a VC in particular, because they, they are masters at not saying no. Um, and so if somebody actually sends back to me an email with a clear no, I am so grateful and I write them back about how much I appreciate the candid feedback. Um, but there are others that it can honestly just be the life cycle of where the company is. Yeah, totally. And there's a legitimate rationale as to why now is not the right time. And you can sense when that is and you know that based on their portfolio and their past investing. So I'm, I'm not talking about those right, scenarios. Right, right. I'm talking about early on when you're going for your first dollars and you're, you're talking to angels, it's, it's very hard to tell because they're not professional investors. There's not a protocol, so to speak. And I wish, wish someone had given me the confidence early on to be able to say no, thank you, but really in the back of my mind, don't waste my time. Amen. Where did those first checks come from? And we'll get back to the point of feeling. Well, first check was mine, and I'm a big believer in this. I don't think you have a right to talk to anybody and approach them and ask them for money if you don't have skin in the game. Okay. So I put my condo on the market, first money was mine, I didn't take a salary for two years, I was not gonna take investors' money to pay myself, I was gonna use it strictly to prove to them that we had a vision and a business. That's first check. Um, then friends and family, people that knew me, people I had worked with that believed in me, that was the first 500,000. And then I was able to tap into early stage CVCs um, and strategics ended up funding. So that's, that's, that's how we got off the ground. When you, the sort of 500,000, what did that allow you to do? That first more semi, not institutional, but like more professional organized maybe round? So the whole intent for that MVP, uh, for that money was to create an MVP. On the marketplace side? Correct. Okay. To prove even in one marina, that I could get people to agree to list their boats. Right. <laughs> they're, they're other children, right? So I'll share a story with you. When I knew I had to go out and get supply, I certainly couldn't pay for marketing to acquire them. It's over $500 per CAC to acquire a boat through paid channels, right? So that wasn't an option. I knew that if I could get one of the largest marina owner operators to back me, then I would have direct access with the endorsement of the marina and most likely see higher conversions on inventory. So I had my heart set on the owner and the president of West Trek Marinas. The gentleman's name is Bill Anderson. And I laugh because this is where tenacity comes into play. I could have gotten to the President of the United States more easily than getting to Bill Anderson. And I tapped every network resource I had. I went and talked to marina owners who had bought marinas from, sold marinas, refused to accept the call, and they're, they're asked for him to have a meeting with me. So I didn't give up. I, one of my early investors is a managing partner at a private equity real estate bank. And I asked him to figure out for me who funded his last development project. <laughs> Turns out it was their bank. So I said, get me a meeting with the CFO and the CEO. And within 24 hours, I had a meeting set up. I flew the two or three scrappy team members that I had with me down to LA and we had a meeting. And he was prepared to just kindly, politely meet me and blow me off. And I showed him the mock-ups of what we had wanted to build. We didn't even have a site yet. I told him about the insurance what was in place, what we were planning on doing with marketing. 
And he said, look, I love the idea. We tried something 12 years ago but couldn't succeed because we didn't solve the insurance. We couldn't market. He said, but if you can prove to me that somebody is going to be willing to let strangers on their boat, said, I'll give you access to my prize marina. It was Harbortown Marina here in Fort Lauderdale. I was in LA at the time. This is Friday afternoon. I'm meeting with Bill and his team. He said, if you can prove to me that you can activate that marina, I'll open up my entire portfolio and I'll take a seat on your board. So Saturday, I booked my flights. Monday, I was there. I had an apartment. I brought my husband and recruited him to become a team <laughs> member with me. And, uh, and we stayed there for six months and launched the pilot. That's what the first $500,000 went, went towards. How did it it was, it was amazing. We had, within the first three weeks of our communication outreach, we had 10% of the tenants register on the site, which blew our minds. And uh, it was very Something that's also very new in, in a space where there's high fidelity or high affinity rather for that asset or like it's your boat, right? It's, it's a very personal thing. Um, and you're changing consumer behavior, right? Not only are you building a supply demand marketplace, but you're also changing consumer behavior. I will tell you, in walking the docks and talking to owners yeah. and pulling a cooler with dry ice and ice cream sandwiches <laughs> to talk to owners, I had owners tell me, and I don't know if this is a saying, but I, it, it stuck with me, you can touch my wife before you can touch my boat. <laughs> so clearly there was uh, some bias we had to overcome. Uh, but interestingly enough, later as we developed, I, I did a survey with Brunswick to over 5,000 boat owners. And what we started to test was, okay, so what are, the, what are the obstacles preventing them to getting to a yes? Let's break it down. One, is it that they want a captain at the helm? Two, is it all about insurance? Three, is it about the location and the ease of management? And when we really started to break it down, it was amazing. 86% of boat owners in this survey said they would consider renting their boat out. And so, under these conditions. And that's how we changed and morphed the operating model over time. And we added the captain's component. And we added the procedures and check-in and check-out for the marinas. So, you know, it's, it's a learning process, always. Awesome. And second lesson. Yeah, second, and not to mention this, it's not only a, it's really a three-sided marketplace in it some is. ways. Assets, right, the actual boats, customers, and you also have this like captain piece captain. that has to come together. So it's actually really kind of, it's more complex than, than two-sided. Awesome. So the second piece you mentioned, there's lessons learned around people and team. So if you haven't been a serial entrepreneur, and I don't know, I, I was constantly second-guessing myself early on. And I didn't have enough faith and trust in my instincts. And I brought on board an advisor early on. And this was a woman in her 50s who had exited a company and, and made a fair amount of money. So presented herself as an expert in all things. And it became very frenetic. She was a toxic individual. She made things more complicated than they had to be. Everything was riddled with drama, and I didn't have the courage or the confidence in myself to sever that tie. Dragged on six months longer than it should have, and it completely slowed progress. And I don't blame her, I blame myself for not having the confidence in myself and allowing her to say things like, you don't have the experience, you don't know what you're doing, I do, and internalizing that. And that was a huge mistake and a lesson learned. And you better believe that I am 
fiercely protective of the culture that we have built in this organization. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, and it's curated by design. It's not happenstance. And if somebody is going to be a toxic element in that environment, I am the first person to grab their hand and walk them to the door and say, good luck. So when you say you're, you're describe your culture to us, like folks who really could be really proud of the culture, what does that mean? Like help us feel what that means, what it's like to be at, at Boat Center. So you walk into Boat Center, first thing you're going to see is beautiful pictures of boats, great experiences. It's all an open floor plan. Everybody's out there interacting. There's open communication. There's a strong sense and expectation that everybody has a voice and is expected to contribute. But we have a deeply embedded get shit done motto. It's, it's on our wall. It's, we actually have a trophy and a ceremony every month where everybody on the team votes and picks somebody who's gotten the most shit done and talking about the contribution that each person has made to the company and they get $100 to either go out drinking or buy something for the company and it is a wonderful ceremony where we read all the wonderful things the team members have said about the others and there's a lot of pride in, in ownership and, and it's so critical to do that because you can't pay quality salaries early on. And, and there's a weeding process there. Um, people who are mercenary, who are there for a paycheck, that's not the right place for them. You know, we're, and, and I'm also a very big believer in developing my team members. So you know, I have a couple individuals that I'm super proud of. One that started as a dock hand. Then I moved him into sales. He ended up running the sales team. And at night, he used to spend time on his own learning to code in SQL and running queries so he can see the results and the analytics on what was transacting. And I was looking at this and I started to ask him about his background. And in college, he was a chemical engineer and he loves numbers. And he really didn't like selling. <laughs> so I put him through training programs. We've got him engaged with Venture City. I don't know if you, you know them. They've given us access to data scientists that have trained him and he is blown my mind in terms of the commitment and the contributions he's making. And we have dashboards and data analytics and business intelligence that we'd only dreamed of, all because recognizing talent in somebody and giving them the opportunity to quelch that intellectual curiosity, I think that's critical. So I love that analogy. Sometimes um, the two things that people kind of knock our ecosystem here for um, is that we don't have enough funding and we don't have enough talent. And I think that is always going to be the case. Like, it's, it's always a problem. I don't know if there's ever enough funding and enough kind of talent to like, like quash the thirst. Um, but I love that because this idea that there's great talent here might need to be kind of molded a bit. But the tenacity, he shares so many core values that you have, right? The, the A, the courage to try something outside the box and new, right? Without asking for permission, but kind of putting himself out there, yes. right? So that boldness, the tenacity. Um, and then this desire, this constant desire to learn and improve himself, right? Core values that, that you want, right? You, you want that, you can't buy that, right? I can buy or you can buy or anybody can buy a data scientist. You can get a coder, developer on board. You can't buy those core values. And we, we do, every two weeks, we do a CEO huddle where the entire company, whether they're remote or local, gets on and they have an hour with me. Mm -hmm. And I take them through the metrics so they can see how we're performing towards our goals, what we've committed, where our weaknesses are, and then someone will showcase the work that they're doing and they have an open platform to ask me questions. And I have been so pleasantly surprised by the depth of the curiosity. I have developers asking me about the fundraising process, you know, and, and I have marketing people asking me about the challenges of, of building out the insurance policy, 
you know, and, and it's just, I love seeing that spark of curiosity and really encouraging that. Yeah, I don't, I hate this question, right? Because um, it's so broad, like, oh, do you have any words of wisdom, right? Um, but if you're, you're standing here, right, looking back X number of years, um, are there any defining moments that aren't necessarily your wins, but any little like tips or tricks that you say, mm, I, I, that has made me a better person, a better entrepreneur, being kind of fiercely protective of your time? That's a beautiful example, right? Like that's gold. Anything else that stands out that someone who's in this process is taking the sleep, is thinking about it, or has taken it as now kind of growing these companies? Anything that you think is like that, that, that beyond surround yourself with good people and do something that you're passionate about? Like, any more like nuanced? I mean, there's, a, there's a dark side to this. It's okay. Hard. So let's drive inside a little bit. How do you deal personally as a person and as a leader, maybe they're separate, um, what's your default kind of reaction to failure or adversity? And is that the same or different? And has it changed now in this role? So my, okay. Um, I don't know if this reaction borderlines on complete delirium in terms of distortion of reality, but I mean, last summer I was on the verge of running out of capital, and I didn't share that with my team. Only certain senior leadership. You know, we we were very close to insolvency, and I think at that point most people would have thrown their hands in the air and just put their head in the sand and cried. And um, it's just. I view myself as a warrior, never being willing to give up to the point of putting myself in the hospital for exhaustion, um, trading off on major you know, family choices. I put this company first and foremost, and it, that's not good or bad, it just is what it is. They're the choices that I made, but in terms of how I dealt with it, I just pushed through it and refused to accept it and refused, refused to accept failure. Like, refuse it. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is delusional. But within a matter of weeks of insolvency, I brought in investment from Airbnb, raised another $9 million, and secured two of our largest partnerships. So it goes to show not giving up can help. You know, it's just. And the swings are so extreme. Oh, it's, it's, for those of you, I mean, I know there are several serial entrepreneurs. It, there's nothing that can prepare you for the highs and lows that you're gonna face. Um, and the lows are ugly. They really are. And I feel one of the biggest changes for me was when I first started cruising, I was alone. And that was the hardest journey to walk. After the merger and bringing in talented leaders that could handle hearing the challenges that we were facing, I mean, you have to be selective about who you share what with. But having others that you can share the burden with and talk through the dark times and paths to be able to move through it was priceless for me. I think that's that's beautiful, absolutely. Folks, we'd love to open this up and make this a little bit more of a, of a dialogue with, with everyone here. Um, do we have mics that we want to run through? Nope, so great, so just stand up, um, project. Um, if you can kind of just share your name and, and kind of what brings you here, and then feel free to fire away. One, two. Hello. I'm Johnny, I'm an endeavor entrepreneur, I'm a co-founder of Trojello. I'm a big fan of yours and I had the pleasure of sitting in and being a fly on the wall at your international selection panel. I love how, how towards the end you're leading with vulnerability. 
So I just have a simple, you know, no scaffolding question. Um, what keeps you up at night now? Given your stay, what worries you? So we've moved from proof of concept into scale mode. And this is, a, this is a new speed for me. And it's investing in different areas of the company and areas that I haven't built prior. And so it's always scary when you're doing something you haven't done before. Um, and we have only a finite amount of capital. So what keeps me up is am I spending the money in the right area? Because I could throw money into marketing and know I could drive transactions but I'm taking a risk right now and I'm investing in building out a tech team, product dev team, product engineering, things that I'm not gonna see the results for some time, but I believe in my heart that this is what we need to do to scale, but it's very scary taking the limited money knowing we have this year to prove certain metrics, and if I place that bet incorrectly, that's it. So that's, that's a scary place to be, it keeps me up at night. Walter. Uh, I help uh, startup companies raise capital uh, in-house, pre-Series A and Series A, and also um, a venture mentor University of Miami and adjunct uh, faculty there with the entrepreneurship uh, program. I was going to ask you a question that I asked you already previously. So in this next phase of scaling your business and deciding to go to Europe, which is a, a very complicated uh, part of the world, I assume it's going to be in the Balearics or somewhere around there, which is prime sailing uh, uh, space. Mm -hmm. um, have you asked yourself, have you saturated all your initiatives here in the U.S. and, and, and the Americas, per se, because, you know, it's a, it's a very, very different animal to Europe, and, and uh, you know, the, the old saying that there's so many things that can go wrong, from currencies to politics to, you know, there's so many things that you're not even aware of. So true. Um, why open another boss, if you will, when you have still so much to tackle after here in the U.S.? Yeah. So to answer your question, we've only scratched the surface and barely scratched the crust in the U.S. Um, but the cost to build this marketplace in the U.S. is significant. And when you look at cultural behavior, the Mediterranean is a concentrated area that has an existing multi-billion dollar business in the boat rental marketplace. And part of the argument is, look, you got to fish where the fish are. And we have operators that are coming to life right now in France, in Spain, that are mirroring our model. And if we don't have a presence there and get them back on their heels, my concern is that we're going to lose a foothold in key market. So yes, you're right. It's diluting the team. It's, it's spreading people thin. It's, it's taking on challenges that we've never faced before. But I don't think we can risk it. I think we have to do it. And I'm focusing on acquiring a key operator in the Balearics, in particular, uh, who know the market, who have the leading expertise in that space. The other thing I know about foreign markets is that it is just hubris as an American to go into a foreign market and assume that I know how it works and the way I've done it here is going to work there. Um, I'm not that naive, so I'm a big believer in getting the right experts in those markets to be able to lead those initiatives. Question. Uh, what's the target uh, of the sizes of boats that you, you guys look to? So our boats range from typically 19 feet up to 120 feet. Our sweet spot is in that 27 to 80 foot range, because that's where you really can't get access to boats like them anywhere else private boat rental fleets can't afford quality vessels like that. 
and they're not really made available in the U.S. That's the beauty of the peer-to-peer -peer model of making these gorgeous privately owned, well-appointed boats available uh, to the market. And, and as far as the captains, because obviously the owners are not necessarily captains, so the owners just, you know, I guess understand the program and they know that there's a captain coming and they just turn their boat over and I'm assuming they make the money from the process. So. But, the U.S. Coast Guard regulatory environment is yes. highly complex, yes. and I don't want to bore you guys with a matrix on what contracts go into place and which captain can be on board and how yes. many um, yes. occupants you can have, but we basically have two types of models, if I can simplify it. We have what's called a timed or demise charter and a bareboat charter, and depending on whether the captain has somebody at the helm that either they have, they are, whether it's them or someone they're paying for, changes the type of charter and caps the number of people. So if an owner wants to captain their boat, they can under certain circumstances. They have to have a six pack license, the vessel has to be inspected by the Coast Guard, and they cap it at six people. Otherwise, you can bear boat and allow up to 12 people on your boat, and you as the owner can say, I'm only letting my boat out if there is a licensed captain at the helm. And what we do is we give the renter a choice from our selected and screened captains, and they hire the captain through the platform. It's all seamless. And that's how you can ensure that there is a licensed captain at the helm and be able to do more rentals and have more people on the boat. Excellent. Thank you. Over here. One, two. Go back. My name is Mark but uh, talking about bets, people don't make bets in big six. Some of them are random. That's not what I'm talking about bets. You've done some acquisitions recently, right? So my question is, why would you buy instead of instead of developing it yourself, developing the market by competing? Because buying is expensive. And why will what value what or how do you convince them to sell? <laughs> win-win negotiations and desperation in some cases um, and sometimes just really aggressive deal negotiation uh, it all depends I mean they're now done three M&A deals each one has been different your first question why buy versus build it's an analysis like any other what's it gonna cost you how long is it gonna take what are you gonna have to invest versus is there a faster speed to market? Do they have better technology that you can leverage? Do they have certain skill sets and where there are gaps on your team? All of those get weighed into the decision and I do a matrix and make the decision based on that. Um, and I always do my diligence on the companies as well. In terms of how to get them to sell. Now that's all, that's a day's session and discussion in and of itself. Um, I've done a very hostile takeover in one case and I've done a very friendly 50-50 merger. So they've covered the gamut. And there's fallout and, and different side effects for both scenarios. And how you integrate the teams is critical. I think that's probably the most underestimated, complicated side of M&A, is the integration and the risk associated with that afterwards. Anything from team culture to technology. It always takes longer than you think, and there are a lot of bad habits that you're bringing into the organization that you want to make sure don't stay. So I, that in and of itself has been one of the more challenging um, 
aspects of what I've done. In all those transactions, you've brought, you've kept their teams, you've incorporated them into yours. Yes, but I have weeded out significantly. I probably plan on keeping 80% and over time maybe keep 10. 10%? I told you, we're, we're serious about our culture. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Tiara Miles, I'm the founder of Cofibra and Home Personal Chef Service. Um, and I'm just curious, going back to The first year. That was a lonely time and not many people. Um, it was begging for services for free. It was finding an outsourced dev team that would do the dev development for me and I couldn't pay them so instead I did a convertible note and converted it to equity which was probably the best deal they ever did. <laughs> it was asking people who have worked with me in the past that I build trust with, getting them to basically donate their time and defer salary. So my first employee, I didn't pay her for the first year. And it was because she'd worked with me in the past and, and I'm a big believer in fairness and I will take care of my people when I can. And I will tell you that I was the last person to get paid and I was always, until three months ago, the paid less than all of my directors and leaders. In the back in the white shirt. Yes. Hi, Cecilia. Um, and not in the industry. But um, I'm curious if a startup at this phase in that industry is ready to be as limited as it is. Does that mean that your next round of funding is coming from really that low stage uh, large capital funding? Um, because other For acquisition targets, there's two types of um, companies we're going after. There's marketplaces and then there are local operators and the valuation is different based on the type of organization that they are. Um, but I think your first question was asking about my, my go forward funding strategy. So right now, um, I am opening up tranches of my A and incrementally increasing the value and I'm doing that for specific deals. And I have one more deal I'm gonna do, and I'm hopeful that in 60 days I will close an, a nice significant raise. And then at the end of the year, we're focusing and we'll be right in that sweet spot and run rate for a high valuation Series B. And I've already started conversations with Series B investors, laying out my strategy, telling them exactly what I'm going to do, uh, which companies, without naming names, I'm going after and why and there are two different sources that I'm going after to raise my A4 versus the Series B. Yeah, I can just kind of accept some issues uh, mentioned, Jackie mentioned around, she's already having conversations with her B round funders, right? That will be uh, a year from now. That'll be a year from now, right? And so prior to my role at night, uh, I was heading up an angel investor group here in Miami called Miami Angels, check them out. Um, when 
when a company comes to an investor, right, and says, I'm raising money, right, there's just getting to know each other, right? Because initially you may be on opposite sides of the table and you're understanding each other and vetting each other and maybe you're negotiating terms. The second the ink dries, before the ink dries, you're on the same side of the table, right? You have to trust that person intimately. You have to know that they're gonna be good stewards of resources and vice versa. Um, you do that over time, right? You do that by seeing how somebody reacts under pressure, reacts to changes. Nothing that any company presents to an investor in month one is likely to pan out in month 12. There will be changes, radical changes, right? Yeah. How yes. does that entrepreneur, that team react to these changes gives you so much more insight as an investor than anything, any deck or any kind of conversation you could have. So that's a huge kind of key. So if anyone here is like looking to raise funds, early conversations, frequent kind of touch points. I loved it when companies that we said no, not now to, um, this isn't the right life cycle for us, kept us in the loop and sent us investor updates anyways, right? Um, I thought that was, that was key. Yeah. Cool. One, two, and then we'll go can, can I share yeah, one story? Um, and, and it's a shame that you guys didn't get to meet Andy. Um, I think some of you know him. But Andy taught me one of the toughest and most valuable lessons in my fundraising life cycle experience. Andy and I came together because a VC came to me and said, and this is after I was struggling, right? $500,000, maybe a million I had raised and just hand to mouth trying to make things meet and begging people to defer costs. And this VC came to me and said, Jackie, I will invest $2.5 million under one condition. I want you to consider merging with Andy Sterner and Boatsetter. And then he went to Andy and they said the same thing. And so Andy and I know how difficult it is to raise funds, so we agreed to meet. I flew out to Florida. <laughs> And what we discovered in the process was that these guys were not nice guys. And we now have a strict NAR rule, no asshole rule. And at the time when we were going through the diligence process, we started to see how they treated us. And this was in the honeymoon phase. So Andy said, Jackie, think about what's gonna happen when we're struggling for cash and we have to recap or we have to go back to them for funding. They're gonna cut us down to loot us. They're just gonna be miserable every step of the way. And he was right, but it was $2.5 million. You know, and I had been sleeping on a couch. <laughs> and uh, I eventually agreed and walked from the money and am so grateful for learning that lesson. So grateful. Awesome, awesome words there. Okay, so one, is it two, three, four. <laughs> um, my name is Carrie. I just moved here from Ecuador. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Um, my question is, what product or service complementary to Boatsetter that um, you haven't found or hasn't been created or is just not the perfect match um, should exist? You mean to support our marketplace? Sure, Oh, there's like a hundred things I want to add to the marketplace. I want to add warranty programs for the engines. I want to add provisioning. I want to be able to add drones that you can, you know, hire to come out and follow the boat and take pictures for you. I want to have fun features in the app that create virality and, and social vision. I mean, how long do you have? <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's a ton. And, and I think being creative is key to helping innovate in, in a product. The challenge is how do you prioritize? And that is the toughest meeting I have every week with my CTO and my CMO, looking at the tech roadmap, knowing everything we wanna do and saying, Ugh, we can only do this one, everything else has to wait. And I know that these three or five are gonna yield more revenues, but 
we've got to get the foundation built. So. It's a hard thing to tell early on. You know, people put on a great face in an interview. And how people react under stress is very different um, in many cases. So we start by now having various team members conduct interviews. I'm now the last person to meet anyone before being hired. Um, in some cases, for the tech team, they'll actually do case studies. They'll send them materials in advance and ask them to prepare work before coming in. So they'll evaluate the thinking process of the individual. And this has morphed over time. Certainly, when I couldn't pay people, beggars couldn't be choosers, right? But at this point, I think it's important that you have buy-in from the team because they have to own the culture. It, it's one thing when it started with me. It's another thing when I see the Get Shit Done Award taking place without me initiating it or running it or leading the ceremony. And so using the team to help vet number one, but um, number two, if you see how they're performing and they are not performing, you gotta cut them because that's just toxic for everyone else and it's demoralizing for those that are putting in the extra time. Do you follow kind of hire slowly, fire quickly? Yes. Hey, Grant, uh, thanks for taking some time. I'm a co-founder of Trapjack Management and uh, I've been pretty underwhelmed frustrated by the auto industry's lack of overthinking. Uh, I think you're the only person in our industry that has said the word Silicon Valley or startups or any, any of that. So I'm curious if there are other companies or individuals that you know, you're impressed with or that kind of share your, your same uh, overthinking. Within the marine industry? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I can point outside of the marine industry and name 50 examples, but... Is there anyone? <laughs> no, I think... No. The deciding factor was, oh my God, I got a bid. <laughs> well, of course, but given it was a new industry, yeah. um, and you were on the forefront of it, uh, what was the deciding factor? What was the, the, the main, the main uh, thing that made them say, okay, yes, let's go for it? Oh, the deciding factor for them. Okay, yeah. sorry. I, I think what it was, was the fact that I was willing to really dig in and understand their industry and their challenges. I mean, I, I researched what the top claims were in the marine space. And then I laid out an operating plan and showed my, how my terms of service would be written and where I would have transactions take off and that I wouldn't allow trailered boats. And, you know, we would do the handoff at a fuel docking station because the majority of accidents happen when people are putting the boat back in the slip. Like, I just created a litany and a list of how I would adjust my operating business model to mitigate their risk. 
and then did pro formas on how much money they could potentially make you know, by investing in us and growing with us. And at first, my terms were, were terrible. But over time, I was able to negotiate new amendments and additional add-ons to the policy and reduce the rates. And you know, we, we were really in a, in a pull position, which was wonderful. And did you get outside help and specific uh, help from people to understand that industry? <laughs> um, I started trying to work with brokers. And it was more frustrating than not. And it wasn't until I cut the brokers out that I made real progress. Interests aren't aligned, I would assume, there, right? Pardon? Interests aren't aligned, and so they're pulling different directions. I think the challenge is early on when you're creating something, something from scratch and there's no precedence and they don't know how much money they're going to make and their premiums are going to be nominal, yeah. they're not willing to put in the time. One last one on the wrap up. I think it's a luxury to be able to be in a position where you have enough of a dev team to be able to test different features and, and, and be able to bring that versatility to the project, to the product. Um, early on, I was just grateful to have something that worked. And I, I'm a big believer, I know this is a, a platitude, is that you don't make the right decision, you make the decision right. And so it's only now that we've elevated the output of our product where I'm proud to say I think we're operating in a world-class realm. And I've brought in a CTO that's far more seasoned, and so he is a lot more hesitant to push things that haven't been properly QA'd. So I think I'm a little more, um, he's more risk-averse than I am. So it's a very health, healthy tug and pull. Um, but I think, I think Mark Zuckerberg's in a wonderful position to have hundreds of developers on staff you know, that can test new things and, and iterate quickly, and we're moving there now. So we've invested heavily recently in systems to give us proper tracking, to create a new database warehouse, to really start to understand the user flows, our conversion rates at every step, and really analyze down to the local region what types of boats, with captain, without captain, are converting at higher rates and why. And so now that we're getting access and visibility into the data, I think we can be much more agile and faster in A-B testing new features, and that's part of the mentality and the mantra. So one thing I will say, about two months ago, we formed a team, a cross-functional team, and it's a growth hacking team. And I have somebody represented from every area of the business, and we have our top developer that's 100% dedicated. That was a big give to pull them out of the core dev team and set them aside for this testing team. And this is something that I'm really excited about in 2018. And now we're going to really adopt that 
fuck it, test it, let's see if it works. If it doesn't, then we move on. Um, so yes, we're, we're embracing that now that we have the resources and we have the foundation that we can iterate on. We'll get a huge round of applause for Dr. Stay connected and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Big Idea Box, hashtag BrainFoodMIA. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the Big Idea Box podcast. And remember to always share with a friend.